Hello and welcome to the Answers for Cancers podcast. I am your host, Anne-Marie Fay. And I'm Michelle Matthews. Together with some of Ireland's leading experts, we want to unravel what it truly means to have cancer. From consultant diagnosis to treatment plans, from managing your symptoms to supports available, we have it covered. So whether you're a nurse working in oncology or have been personally affected by cancer, this podcast is for you. Dr. Duffy is a medical oncologist, researcher and author of This Living and Immortal Thing. He completed his undergraduate medicine at Trinity College in Dublin and has taken the medical field by storm ever since. Cancer is something he is very familiar with. He moved to New York in 2006 after completing his oncology training in Ireland. He had won a fellowship courtesy of a 200,000 scholarship program to take up residency at one of the world's oldest and most renowned cancer centres, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre, where he was undertaking innovative research surrounding gastrointestinal cancers. Most recently, he is a professor of translational oncology at UCD and has shifted his focus and taken a keen interest in immune-based approaches to cancer and is one of Ireland's leading experts and researchers in immunotherapy, which we cover in detail today. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as we did. We are really excited about what the future holds for immunotherapy. Good morning, Professor Duffy. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to us on the podcast today about immunotherapy. It's something that we're really, really interested in and something we're starting to see an awful lot more of now in oncology. I wonder, could you just tell us a little bit about immunotherapy and what is it? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me as a guest. Um, So immunotherapy, I guess, is a totally different way of treating cancer. And to sort of simplify it um, a little bit, it's basically an attempt uh, to get the immune system, your own body's immune system, or to manipulate your own body's immune system uh, to fight against a, a cancer, as opposed to uh, giving drugs which um, go into a patient's bloodstream, uh, travel to the cancer, and um, uh, kill it uh, sort of in a more external way. Uh, so in immunotherapy, of course, you do give drugs, I mean, um, for sure. But even in that um, context, the drugs are really attempting to manipulate the patient's own immune system, either to inhibit it or to amplify it or to otherwise change it in some way in order that to allow the immune system then to go off and fight against the cancer. Because, of course, our immune systems are pretty ancient and um, I suppose the the feeling is that um, uh, and, and they're also uh, the, our immune systems are extremely complicated and complex and they have things like memory that your average off-the-shelf cytotoxic chemotherapy drug doesn't have so the immune system is, is an alive uh, thing it's an alive a biological process that we all have within us and um, if we can harness its power um, to, uh, you know, counteract or to attack the cancer, well, that can be an amazing thing. And we've all seen the results of this over the past few years of when it actually works. It can be absolutely astonishing. And, you know, I've, I've certainly seen that. Um, it doesn't happen uh, all the time, unfortunately, and that's what we're all trying to figure out is you know how can we um, extend the benefits of it to uh, include more people um, but when it works it really works brilliant. brilliant and what types of cancer can be treated with immunotherapy so um, this is a really good question and it sort of to a certain extent 
um, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to answer it. Um, theoretically, all types of cancer could potentially be amenable to immunotherapy. But of course, the way drug development works, you've got to prove it first, right, before, before you can um, give someone immunotherapy. And therefore, um, while it's true what I just said, that potentially, or theoretically, all patients' cancers can be amenable to immunotherapy, that's not the case in reality. And there are certain cancer types in which the currently used immunotherapies, and I, we can come back to discuss about that perhaps, because that's a very broad term, mm. but there are certain cancer types in which these commonly amused, used immunotherapy at the moment are more effective, um, um, as opposed to other cancer types where we really haven't seen much effectiveness. So when you look at the immunotherapies such as the anti-PD-1 inhibitors, and we can discuss about what that means, but um, that's kind of what people mean nowadays when they talk about immunotherapy. They're really talking about the immune checkpoint inhibitors, of which the major class in day-to-day -day practice are the anti-PD-1 drugs. Um, so they have, be have, a s have an established benefit in um, uh, predominantly in lung cancer, uh, melanoma, um, but other, ca other cancer types as well, such as uh, liver cancer, an emerging role in breast cancer, stomach cancer, etc. Uh, so there are, there are um, you know, other, other diseases where they're applicable, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, etc. Uh, but the initial really good responses which really fired the whole field were seen mainly in initially in melanoma and then uh, to everybody's surprise actually uh, lung cancer um, but even within those disease disease types which you know overall respond better you know so for example melanoma or lung cancer compared to like pancreatic cancer or colorectal cancer even though that's true uh, that those folks with those diseases are more likely to to have benefit, and and in fact, those um, those are the where the indications where the drugs are approved. Um, there are still patients, unfortunately, with those disease subtypes who don't respond, and um, um, you know, and, and so it's 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 hard to generalize, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, ac across the board. Okay. okay, and you mentioned there the checkpoint inhibitors. Um, we hear that a lot with immunotherapy. Would you be able to just elaborate a little bit on what that they exactly are? Right. So yeah, I mean, I think it's worth sort of me mentioning that the the term immunotherapy is one that's kind of caught on, and it's something that we we use, uh, y you know, um, constantly, uh, um, even within you know the the context of f even f physicians and. Um, uh, clinical staff and patients, everybody uses this term. And it's kind of become, I think, even amongst clinicians and oncologists and nursing staff, synonymous with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. But it, I think it is worth pointing out that immunotherapy is, uh, can actually mean an awful lot of things. Mm -hmm. It can mean cell-based therapies, which we might come back to. It can mean vaccines. It can mean chemotherapeutics even. It can mean viruses. Uh, there's quite a lot that the term immunotherapy really encompasses. It's a very broad term. But you're right, when people really talk, like today or tomorrow, if we're in a meeting, any of us are in a meeting and someone puts up their hand and says, oh, what about immunotherapy? We kind of know that they're probably referring to the immune checkpoint mm -hmm. inhibitors. 
and uh, certainly they dominate the, the market, they dominate the field, they dominate the approvals. Mm -hmm. And um, they have been pretty much on the scene uh, um, for you know pretty much a decade now. Um, what they do, the first immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, well, first of all, the term checkpoint in inhibitor, you know, what, what does that actually mean? And it's a little bit of a clumsy term, but um, what it essentially means is that, you know, when, when an immune cell comes in contact with a tumor cell or a piece of a tumor cell uh, that you might call an antigen or, an, or a neoantigen, um, that you're hoping that the immune cell gets activated in some way uh, and then propagates and then heads off to look for other cancer cells bearing whatever signal it was that caused the immune cell to be activated in the first place. Um, and um, for that clone of uh, T cells basically to attack the cancer. What happens in the early phase of that process where the immune cell has been educated um, to uh, you know for what to be on the lookout for various so-called checkpoints get upregulated onto the cell surface of the immune cell and um, just to throw some jargon out there but the two, two most prevalent ones that people talk about would be CTLA4 or PD-1 and um, they are um, the the two um, most prominent checkpoints um, um, which do get uh, expressed on the surface of the immune cell uh, during the process of the immune cell becoming activated. Um, they are defense mechanisms against autoimmunity. So basically what nature has designed over the, over the millennia is that if your immune system gets uh, turned on, if it gets you know, motivated or switched on to some extent, there should be a countervailing uh, or countermanding um, signal to try and dampen that down a little bit. Because what you don't want, because uh, an immune cell is a pretty powerful thing, it's like a special forces soldier. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the cancer context, you want that special forces soldier, this T cell, to be, you know, um, armed and ready for action to kill the cancer cell but um, nature has another way of looking at it which is that if you have an armed <laughs> aggressive immune cell fl flying around your body it can also cause damage mm -hmm. uh, which is basically where the toxicity and the side effects come from um, which is basically an, an autoimmune uh, reaction so these checkpoints uh, the CTLA4 and PD-1 or I suppose nature's way of telling the T cell to calm down, mm -hmm. you know, to stop it, and um, um, so that it doesn't cause go off and and uh, cause uh, unlimited damage and immune activation. Mm -hmm. Now, in the of course that whole process evolved not with cancer in mind. That's something that happened over the millennia. Uh, in the cancer context you don't necessarily, if you've got a T cell that's armed and activated and ready to go and kill a cancer cell, you don't want to stand in its way. Mm -hmm. So therefore these checkpoint molecules that are expressed on the T cell 
the newly activated T cell, either CTLA4 or PD1, are not helpful because mm -hmm. they're they're slowing down the 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 immune cell, the T mm -hmm. cell, and that's where the immune checkpoint inhibitors come in. Mm -hmm. So, the the initial uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor that got approved was a drug called ipilimumab, which is an antibody against CTLA4, that first initial checkpoint molecule. So what they found was that by blocking the uh, CTLA4, which is what ipilimumab does, in patients with melanoma, um, it allowed those T cells to go and attack the cancer, and it resulted in very good responses. Response. Again, not for everybody. And the same then is with PD-1. So the PD-1 inhibitors came next, entering the clinic. And uh, by blocking PD-1, we, sh we sh showed a similar thing. And that's where the terminology comes from. So they're immune checkpoint inhibitors. They block these immune checkpoints. They really just it are a means of getting out, of getting out of the way of the immune cells so they can go off and, and attack the cancer. Mm -hmm. Great. And how would you select the appropriate immunotherapy for the patient? So this really comes down to the indication for the treatment. Uh, so there are certain, and this is kind of an artifact of how clinical trials are done um, and um, which trials are done, which trials are positive and which drug company gets there first with their agent. I mean, so for exam example, there are plenty of anti-PD-1 drugs, whether it's pembrolizumab or nivolumab, you know, or similar drugs which block the other component of the uh, you know the pdl1 molecule such as atezolizumab or avelumab so all the different drug companies have their own uh, versions and they're all kind of um well they're all kind of different but the same mm -hmm. you know um in many ways and in terms of what we can actually prescribe to the patient that's sitting in front of us well that depends where you live which country in the world because not all countries have this have access to the same drugs and so there's a huge issue in terms of disparities across the world, you know, not just in this area, of course, but in, in all sorts of areas. But even within the sort of so-called developed world of the United States um, and us here in Ireland and Europe, um, each country has its own kind of regulatory approval. Um, some countries have adopted the, 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 the positive trials and said, and have got a policy which allows you to prescribe that drug that's shown benefit and other countries don't. Mm -hmm. um, so it comes down not so much a lot of the time to the science, but the happenstance of where you live, what trials have been done, and what indications, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the approval process. Yeah. Um, and then when would you decide to use a combination immunotherapy as like, for instance, um, Ipi and Nevo? So again, that would be um, driven by the trials. So um, for instance, in melanoma, one of the earlier studies showed a benefit for the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab um, over uh, nivolumab alone in melanoma. Um, and there was a difference, but um, the the of course the pr the problem is that when when you add more drugs you get more toxicity yeah. and more yeah. side effects and that applies to non-immune drugs as well um so the the debate is is that difference in that particular situation uh worth the added risk of toxicity 
And then you can sort of drill down into it a little bit and say, well, are there patients who we can get away with just the monotherapy, the PD-1 alone agent? Um, or does this patient's tumor, uh, is there something about this patient's tumor that it actually requires the dual inhibition, both drugs together? Um, but in general, so, so you can certainly get into the fine print there uh, to make that sort of uh, d um, uh, discussion. You also obviously have to bear in mind the patient, um, the patient's performance status and things like that, and whether they have any contraindications. Um, but essentially, the main t um, reason for cho choosing dual or checkpoint inhibitor, I mean, as in two drugs as opposed to one drug, is really based on whether there was the clinical trial which led to the in that particular disease, which led to the approval, um, and which you're. Go the government of whatever country you're living in has agreed to reimburse it or there's some sort of uh, mechanism for paying for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, it and it's usually those factors, to be quite honest, that dominate rather than the actual, um, you know, the small print of which tumours, you know, you can... Better, like. Yeah, which tumours, you know, you, you might be able to get away with the monotherapy versus the dual, mm -hmm. dual therapy. Do you think that's just because it's new? Do you think down the line, like when more research backs it up, it might just become a bit more mainstream, that it's easier to just use it in the first instance? You mean uh, the dual therapy, the two, two drugs? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, this is all new, you're yeah. right. And, and you know, um, it's really remarkable to go back and think about how new all of this stuff is. I mean, mm -hmm. even, with even before talking about the drug therapy, a lot of the uh, basic immunology of how the immune system works wasn't really f worked out, you know, e at a fairly basic level, even until, you know, the n 1980s mm. and 1990s. I mean, you know, you, you, you think, you see that the, um, Jim, I mean, Jim Allison won the Nobel Prize uh, a couple of years ago for his work on discovering the T-cell receptor um, and other, um, and related things. And of course he was instrumental in the um, development of uh, the science behind the immune checkpoint inhibition. But that was all, that's all been fairly recent mm -hmm. in historical terms, you know? Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're very much at the beginning of all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully, you know, um, the things will become more refined um, as, as we go forward. And, and you know, to, to go back to that dual therapy versus monotherapy, you know, perhaps it is the case that um, a patient who's uh, with melanoma, for example, who has a high PDL1 score on their tumor may do okay with monotherapy and might not, might not need the um, the anti-CTLA-4 component. But this is really an evolving area also because, you know, what I said about the added toxicity of adding in the anti-CTLA-4, mm. even that's a little bit of a moving target because uh, there's now a trend, uh, and there has been, towards minimizing the, um, the amount of infusions of the anti-CTLA-4 that patients get. And there's recent data that just giving the anti-CTLA-4 on day one only um, might be all you need, um, therefore minimizing the toxicity, but also giving you that added stimulation that you get with the anti-CTLA-4.
I suppose we see it ourselves. Patients mm. can really struggle with the combination yeah. therapy, you mm-hmm. know, especially kind of towards cycle four. Uh, mm. The toxicities could be strong for some mm-hmm. patients. Right, yeah. And, and the big concern with the anti-CTLA-4, uh, the ipilimumab um, portion, would be the um, colitis and the gastrointestinal yeah. toxicities. And I've seen some severe um, uh, gastrointestinal toxicities with that. And it's, I tell you, it can be very, very difficult mm-hmm. Uh, to to manage and it can be you know and it can even be life threatening yeah. so these mm-hmm. are very serious things mm-hmm. luckily luckily enough they're relatively rare or on uncom- I wouldn't say rare but certainly uncommon mm-hmm. um, especially if you can and, and I think there's also been a learning curve um, within the clinical community for better management and really earlier management um mm. you know and, I've, uh, we, and i think there's more of an awareness around that which is probably even more important mm-hmm. yeah. do patients need to express like a certain percentage of pdl1 for example to be a candidate for immunotherapy right so that's a great question and, and again it's a little bit um it's a little bit complicated but mm. um Yes, um, for certain disease types, you uh, the approval is dependent on PDL1 status. Um, you know, for example, in um, lung cancer, you know, you did do need. I mean, I'm I'm not a lung cancer <laughs> expert, but mm. I don't see lung cancer patients. But certainly, it has been the case that you needed an expression level of greater than fifty percent oh, wow. in the first okay. line setting. Uh, and then there are other indications where, uh, for immunotherapy, where you can prescribe immunotherapy, where you don't need the PDL1 uh, status. Again, mm. that's a little bit of an artifact of how the drug was approved, on what trial uh, population the approval that uh, the trial was performed in, leading mm. to the approval, um, and that and that does vary. Um, I think it in it's probably fair to say that in most cases, most um, uh, indications and most situations where the um, immune checkpoint inhibitor is prescribed, PDL1 is not um, is not required or not. Um, um, the thing about PDL1 is that it does have a role. It's you know it's it's a useful biomarker, um, but it's it's not as good as we would want it um, in terms of predicting. Um, whether someone's going to respond or not. There are certain diseases or certain situations where it doesn't seem to predict at all. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I- but in general, if you had the choice, uh, you would want, you know, if you, were, if you were undergoing this treatment yourself and you were given the choice, you would certainly choose to have a high PDL1 tumor versus a low PDL1 tumor. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Um, you touched off a couple of the toxicities there a couple of minutes ago and you mentioned colitis. Is that um, is there anything else that we need to consider in terms of side effects with immunotherapy? Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, you know, because the immune system is such an p- integra- integrated and integral part of our whole bodies and it's really systemic, you know, it, aff- it, it can really affect anywhere mm. and cause any toxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, uh, the most important thing to do is to have an open mind. You know, it, it, can, it can literally, because your immune cells can pretty much get anywhere. I mean, there are some um, uh, sanctuary sites, but uh, your immune cells can pretty much get anywhere mm-hmm. and uh, cause some damage. And um, if, 
you were unlucky enough that the the immune system has been um, either pre-educated or has become educated in some way to go after a normal part of your body. Um, um, it's possible that the immune checkpoint inhibitor that you're giving with the hope of um, act amplifying the anti-cancer um, uh, effect will actually um, amplify that other effect, you know, that autoimmune effect where the, the uh, T cell is, is looking for uh, trouble against a non-cancer cell mm -hmm. and that's where the autoimmunity uh, comes from but that could be anything i mean we do have a sense of the common toxicities you know um particularly with the pd1 agents um hormonal side effects can be common such as hypothyroidism also pulmonary toxicities pneumonitis um whereas as i mentioned with the ctla4 colitis is the big concern um, but, you know, there, it seems every week there's a new case report of some new toxicity um, um, relating to the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So okay. I think the key thing is really to have an open, open mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just to ask, I, when we had our uh, podcast with Dr. Greeley and we were talking about the monoclonal antibodies, so the likes of Cetuximab and stuff, and she was saying that, um, like, with the side effects of that, like, with the, the likes of the rash and stuff, she said sometimes, like, ironically, that can actually indicate that it's working a little bit better with the, um, with the likes of the immunotherapies. Would that be similar or not really? It, it is actually similar. It's a good question. Uh, there is some evidence that um, the more that... that having toxicity um you know can be a predictor uh for response or people who ha in general people who have toxicities against immunotherapy you know um uh, are at a increased um uh, or seem to have an increased or an increased likelihood of benefiting from the drug it's not it's it, i don't know how useful that is though in day-to-day -day mm. practice it's just not a strong enough mm -hmm. indicator um you know it does arguably it doesn't really it doesn't really help in your man clinical management um you know although i get i guess it can it might be encouraging uh, for a patient who's having a tough time and having some toxicity that that you know this this piece of information might be helpful to them um, I guess things will then uh, be determined on the CT scan or, mm -hmm. or, or over time um, but yeah there is something to that that if you're more if you're having toxicity there is a, an increased rate uh, or an inc increased likelihood of benefit but again uh, uh, hard to emphasize it too much because I've seen plenty of patients who've had dramatic responses um, to immunotherapy and didn't get any toxicities mm -hmm. yeah. and vice versa I've seen patients who have severe toxicities and unfortunately didn't get a benefit mm -hmm. so if it is a biomarker for response it's not a very good one okay and what immunotherapies are available for patients in Ireland to receive? So you're basically talking about the immune checkpoint inhibitors um, and um, as a class, um, not all of them um, and not in every indication that we would want. So in my own area of interest, for example, which is liver cancer, um, if I if I was working in, in the United States, there were, are several immunotherapy drugs that are approved and that I could prescribe mm -hmm. 
um, either in the first line or second line uh, situation, whereas in Ireland we don't have access to any actually um, outside of a clinical trial. So um, the immune checkpoint inhibitors are available here in Ireland for you know melanoma, lung cancer, head and neck cancer, um, but um, there are a couple of areas where I just have to be honest that we're, we're a little bit behind and I mentioned liver cancer. The other striking um, uh, cancer type that um, we don't have availability is in what's called MSI high uh, cancers, which is a molecular subtype um, um, of a lot of different cancer types, colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer would be the three common ones, where a small portion of each of those patients would have this M so-called MSI high uh, change. And that was, a, uh, and, and in, in those p folks, immunotherapy works stunningly well. I mean, I was involved in the early trial um, lo looking at that, um, um and the results i saw in the clinic were absolutely astonishing and uh, that is an approved treatment in america so if you w if you have that subtype of cancer you can get immunotherapy and it can really be um, i mean it can be life saving um whereas here um it's not available it's not reimbursed it's not approved um, our only way of accessing it is through um, trying to get compassionate access from the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and is there any oral immunotherapies available? We only see intravenous here at the moment. Anyway. Right. Not. Not. Not yet. No. I mean, all of the all of the immunotherapies really available here are it, the immune checkpoint inhibitors given intravenously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a, a um, whole um, um, emerging and research area looking at subcutaneous injections of immunotherapies, intratumoral injections. Um, um, I haven't seen any data for oral immune yeah. checkpoint inhibitors. There are other oral drugs that can be immune modulators. Um, which which might be complementary or work in some other fashion, but no, there right now there are no oral uh, immunotherapies, certainly not here in Ireland. Okay, and would we pre-medicate patients before we give them immunotherapy? Usually with chemotherapy, we give them steroids and an antiemetic. Is it the same with immunotherapy, or is there a need to? Generally not. No, I mean there there are a couple of immunotherapies where. Um, allergic reactions or hypersensitivity reactions you know have been described uh, Velumab would be one where I've seen it seems to be um, somewhat more frequent that you get a hypersensitivity reaction which w in which case you might need to premedicate but in uh, compared to chemotherapy where you, you know you have to give prophylactic antiemetics and so forth no there's no need for that they don't usually what's what's really been jumped out to me over the past 10 years of being interested in and giving these drugs is how well tolerated they are. I mean, we did speak about the toxicities and I would never minimize those. But apart from that, I mean, day to day, um, you know, it's it's just no comparison with chemotherapy. You certainly don't get any of the, the chronic fatigue issues and hair loss and nausea which are sort of synonymous with uh, uh, cytotoxics and chemotherapy. Mm. 
we see that ourselves don't we really yeah. in the day ward there's yes. just no comparison between IV yeah. chemotherapy and patients who are on immunotherapy with side effects day to day it's brilliant mm-hmm. um, and then I suppose when given in combination with chemotherapy um, is there a sequence of administration that should be followed or can they be given kind of um, so not that I'm aware of um, I mean I- I- again if, if you're giving a regimen that's a chemotherapy and an immunotherapy that's probably based on a clinical trial that was done. So uh, you would just follow the administration instructions that they used in the trial. Uh, now, you know, my experience of developing those sort of trials is that often there isn't a clear cut scientific reason for giving one versus the other. Uh, some of it's to do with convenience and timing, um, you know, um, so no it's there's no hard and set uh rule uh the question really comes down to is so is there a drug i suppose what you're really asking is is there a drug interaction that we Mm. know of the thing about these these immunotherapies is that they're monoclonal antibodies uh so they don't tend they're so they don't tend to be they don't tend to interact um or be at risk of interactions with other drugs the way, for example, you'd be worried about, I don't know, tamoxifen and, a, and an SSRI or something like that, where you actually, uh, where the metabolism of one drug can actually interfere with the metabolism of the other drug. Uh, monoclonal antibodies, by their very nature, aren't as prone to that type of, um, that type of inter- drug-drug interaction. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned earlier about clinical trials and patients being able to access drugs through clinical trials. Is there many clinical trials going on in Ireland at the moment and how would patients access them? Uh, There are clinical trials absolutely going on in Ireland. Uh, There aren't enough of them and we're all, you know, a lot of us are trying to really um, work to improve that. Um, There is an organisation called Cancer Trials Ireland, I suppose, which would be the main you know uh, disseminator or uh, of clinical trials uh, the main proponent of clinical trials uh, on a national basis um, and then there are academic trials I myself believe that we need um, what we're really lacking in this country is is access to what I would term early phase clinical trials so the trials that we tend to do tend to be more l- sort of later phase uh, phase three drug uh, trials so-called which which in in, a, in essence means that um, by the time a drug gets to phase three, it's it's been around for a while, you know, and uh, and that's fine. It might be a very good trial. I'm not I w- not th- those trials are very important, but I think as a country we need earlier we need access to earlier drugs in the pipeline because there's and we currently don't have a mechanism for that, um, and. Um, you know, I, I very much think that that's the direction we should, or a direction we, we should go in as a country uh, to sort of provide that option for patients, particularly patients who have been through multiple lines of treatment. And often you will find that they're not eligible for these phase three trials, which are often confined to f- first line treatment or, you know, not always, but, but that's in general. Um, I think we need uh, more access to earlier phase um, research where patients have earlier access to uh, the industry pipeline. Mm. Because okay. also the, the, wor- the world of science cha- changes very fast yeah. and 
um, you know, um, not having access to early phase means, you know, our patients aren't getting, you know, the opportunity um, to, you know, try a drug that looks promising until it's already been through many years of development. Um, I suppose if we could, we could just touch off a little bit about fertility. Do you think that's something that patients need to consider when receiving immunotherapy? Um, so, absolutely, it's it's something to th- to think about. I guess um, it, it's not not in the sense that of the cytotoxic um, uh, of the considerations as regards the cytotoxic situation, where you're very much you know, uh, particularly with some of the um, do- do- high dosing for, for example, chemotherapy drugs in the adjuvant situation of breast cancer, where, you know, that's definitely a concern. Um, we don't have the same data for uh, immunotherapies and their effect on um, on fertility. And, and certainly in the clinical trials, um, you know, you you know any any um any possibility of pregnancy is really um or you know certainly pregnancy but you know any any possibility of pregnancy is really um contraindicated you know in order to be take to in order to t- be eligible and take part in the clinical trial you kind of have to sign up to mm-hmm. to, to to that mm-hmm. Um, because we just don't we just don't have any safety information at all yeah. Yeah. Um, for these drugs in the pregnancy situation. I know the its effects on infertility outside or fertility outside of that is a different question, and I'm not aware of any evidence that um, these drugs, you know, disrupt your fertility or are you know are not. Um, the other question is with related to this though is that if you're on immunotherapy and if it's working you're probably going to be on it for quite a while so that's and if you're going to be on it for quite a while as i just said there'd be no there'd be no there's no data or no safety data for them becoming pregnant on on that Mm -hmm. on that drug okay so there are many different aspects to to that whole question perfect fair enough and would you mind, it's just something I know very little about, but you touched on earlier on, it's just vaccines and vaccines that are available. So um, a vaccine here is, in the in this context, would be different to, you know, the vaccine for inf- against yeah. infections, you know, the flu vaccine or, you know, or whatever. Because um, in that situation, you're, you know, you're taking a, a, a vaccine um, to prevent um infection with the flu or whatever uh, so it's the, so the so the 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 um the term the use of the term vaccine is different in an infectious diseases context as opposed to a cancer context mm. in a cancer cancer vaccines the idea has been around for a while you're actually using it in the setting of established cancer and you're trying to introduce to the body um almost a piece of what you are what you hope is a piece of the person's cancer to try and educate their um, immune system to uh, and get it interested in the cancer hoping that it'll re- result in stimulating the immune system to go off then and, and fight against the um, 
fight against the, the cancer. Um, so far, um, you know, I mean, it's a great concept, right? Um, unfortunately, it hasn't really panned out. I think if I was to generali generalize over a huge, a huge field um, um, and a lot of great science, you know, very simply, I would say it has, hasn't really panned out yet. Mm. Um, but of course, most of uh, that work was done in the pre-immune checkpoint uh, era. And the argument would have been that, well, you know, you're introducing a vaccine against a cancer to try and stimulate this immune response. Maybe the immune response, and there was always plenty of evidence that, you know, at the, you're, you were, were generating an immune response, but it was clinically irrelevant. It wasn't, it was too weak. It wasn't mm -hmm. strong enough. But of course, in the immune checkpoint inhibitor, the, you could take all of that back and say, well, now we can amplify it and make it stronger. So that is a whole uh, field, and um, you know, hopefully, it'll it'll pan out mm -hmm. and result in some positive developments. But e you know, even you know, you can even use. Um, there are different ways to define vaccine. For example, I'm I'm opening a study, uh, um, or about to open a study looking at immunotherapy in patients with liver cancer, where we're actually doing a taste procedure where we're um, uh, which is a standard of care procedure in liver cancer where you block off the blood supply to the tumor mm -hmm. piece of the tumor dies and uh, stimulates an immune response uh, we've known for decades that that happens but now that the immune checkpoint inhibitors are here we can actually um, amplify that response um, with these immune checkpoint in inhibitors so in that sense the taste is actually turning the patient's own tumor into a vaccine. Wow. Um, and a similar approach could be done with chemotherapeutics, with uh, oncolytic viruses. Um, there, are, there are many different ways you could potentially approach it, actually. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. I think we've kind of covered most of yeah, them, have we? The only thing that I didn't think we covered was the CAR T cell. Do yeah. we want to cover that a little bit? Yeah. Or what do you think? What do you think? It's up to you guys. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I, I, I was just under the illusion that um, it was the two different types were the checkpoint inhibitors and then CAR T cell therapy, but obviously I know it's much more complicated than that. So uh, um, yeah, I don't know what way. What do you think? Uh, it's not available here. CAR -T -cell, it's not it? available here. Yeah. I don't think no. so. No. Okay, fine. No. Yeah. yeah. Is well, it coming? Do you think? Or well, hopefully at some point. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's approved in. Mar I don't. Don't think it's approved. I don't think. Yeah. I yeah. don't think so. It's okay. It is mainly in hematological malignancies yeah. at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it'll be an episode for down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Grant, we'll, we'll leave it off You then. could do a whole episode on CAR exactly, T cells. Exactly, on CAR T cells. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Perfect. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Brilliant time. Okay. You're so good. Thank you. Hopefully it Thanks very much. No, no, it was perfect. perfect. Thanks for listening to the Answers for Cancers podcast. Please share this podcast with anybody who you think it might help. Also, if you can like and subscribe, it lets people know we're here. You can alternatively contact us on Instagram at the answers for cancers underscore podcast. And if you have any questions on anything that we discussed today, please email us at the answers for cancers podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram.